Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. When I first sought an education in forestry, one of my desires that drove my curiosity was to learn the names and stories of all the trees around me. Growing up, I could do no better than point at a tree and say, that's a tree. Over there, another tree. Oh, this one here's an evergreen. Identifying the nuance of the natural world was not something associated with my upbringing. But there is a tree I learned about from a very young age, and perhaps you did too, thanks to a nursery rhyme. It goes a little something like, Here we go round the mulberry bush, the mulberry bush, the mulberry bush. Here we go round the mulberry bush so early in the morning. Granted, I wasn't totally sure what a mulberry bush was or why we were going round it, but it's curious to look back on how prevalent this little tune was. There are so many variations that if you're familiar with it, then it's likely you learned it with slightly different words. That song is considered to be hundreds of years old, but humans have been singing the praises of the mulberry for thousands of years. Unlike other plants named for their fruits, though, it's unlikely that you've ever been able to buy mulberries from the grocery store. So if not for food... How did this tree permeate into Western culture so thoroughly that children can grow up singing about it? Today, we'll explore why the mulberry was at the epicenter of early global trade, how it supports theories of human migration, and what tragic romances it has witnessed. This is not the first time I've talked about the mulberry on this show. Sure, it's the first episode centered around the plant, but I've mentioned the mulberry family, Moraceae, on numerous occasions. It is, after all, the plant family where we find fig trees. 1,100 individual species are in Moraceae, 800 of which are figs, and depending on the botanist you talk to, between 15 and 70 species are mulberries. And yet, the Latin family name is not in reference to figs, which should start to give you an idea of just how important mulberries have historically been. Despite the fact that mulberries are so closely related to figs, I will not be discussing pregnant wasps in your fruit at this time, which I understand you may find a relief, or perhaps a disappointment. Not to worry though, there is still plenty of weird insect stuff to cover with this group but I'm getting ahead of myself. The mulberry genus, the members of which get the exclusive right to consider themselves true mulberries, is called Morris in Latin. Morris is simply an ancient name for the plant, stemming from languages that preceded ancient Greek and Latin. It's also where we get the common name mulberry. At some point, moreberry evolved into mulberry. If I had a chance at a second life, I would probably stay in school forever studying linguistics because every time I research a new tree, I always get a little stuck on the etymology of these names and fall down deep rabbit holes. Anyway, I mentioned that there may be anywhere from 15 to 70 true mulberries, but why the discrepancy? It all comes back to how our understanding of biological connections have expanded thanks to the introduction of molecular genetics, 
Modern scientists can look more closely than ever before at what details make an individual plant unique and better classify species into groups based on those differences. But not every corner of science keeps up with these ever-changing metrics. Traditional practices of linking plants together based on life cycle similarities, specifically how similar their reproductive organs function, is still sometimes favored. Taxonomy is yet another rabbit hole that is all too easy to fall down. Before I get into those considered true mulberries in the strictest sense, I'd like to first mention a couple mulberry relatives that I don't expect will get full episodes dedicated to them. One such relative is a tree called the Osage Orange, scientifically named Maclura pomifera. I don't think the Osage Orange was ever considered to be a mulberry, as their reproductive parts are wildly different. The fruit of the Osage Orange, which is also not an orange, is a softball-sized orb that is bumpy and green. It's native to the southern Great Plains region, so primarily Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Texas, but has been planted extensively throughout the middle of the country. The reason for its extensive planting is a physical characteristic that I am particularly not fond of. It's thorns. I hate pokey trees. And this tree is extra pokey. But when early pioneers were grabbing land across the Great Plains, ranchers needed a means for keeping their cattle from crossing where they didn't want to. So they would plant saplings of this tree along fence rows, and the thorns would encourage livestock to stay put. The thorns along the orange-yellow stems actually inspired the invention of barbed wire, the technology that would ultimately replace them. Indigenous peoples also made use of the Osage orange, using the wood to craft excellent bows. French explorers, seeing this, gave the plant the name Bodark, or Bowwood. It was neat learning about all this in the formal setting of a college class. This was one tree I was already well acquainted with, as the large hard fruits were what teenage boys in Oklahoma like me threw at each other for fun. Another related species worth mentioning is one called the paper mulberry. It is most commonly classified as Brusonetia paperifera, and though my college dendrology textbook published in 2001 identifies it as such, I could have sworn we learned it in class as Morris paperifera, a true mulberry, and that is still considered a synonym today. The reproductive structures of the plants are different enough, but without those, a paper mulberry could easily be confused from afar with the North American native red mulberry. It certainly carries some interesting human stories, but those I'll save for the second half. I've already spent a great deal of time talking about similarities and differences in physical structures without first identifying what the dozen or so truest mulberries look like. And even though there are at least 15 mulberries in the Morris genus, I'm going to focus on just three of them, white, black, and red mulberries. Scientifically, they are Morris alba, nigra, and rubra, respectively. Mulberries are medium-sized trees, reaching heights of around 50 feet or 15 meters at maturity in good settings. Young shoots are characteristically orange in hue, but their exterior gets increasingly gnarled as the tree ages. In other words, an old mulberry in winter looks more like the Whomping Willow from Harry Potter than most willow trees that I've seen. Even a barely adult mulberry will form these strange ridges or rolls along the bark of its trunk, making it appear to bear the weight of its age, which can reach hundreds of years, even if most only live for a few decades. 
mulberry leaves are incredibly curious, as they are polymorphic, meaning there are multiple different shapes that a mulberry leaf can be. Typically, they will be one of three shapes, the most simple being slightly heart-shaped, its base curving in slightly towards the leaf stalk, and its tip tapering out to a long point. But sometimes the leaf will form lobes. They may form just a single lobe, giving it the appearance of a mitten, or the lower peninsula of Michigan, or, if the mulberry is feeling extra spicy, its leaves will separate into three to five lobes, looking almost identical to its relative, the fig. An individual mulberry may produce leaves of a single shape across the tree, but more often than not, you can look at the canopy and see multiple distinct leaf shapes all on the same tree. Mulberry flowers often go unnoticed, at least visually. They are small, green catkins that grow in around the same time the leaves do, and so can be easily confused with the small, new green leaf. The flowers are either male or female, meaning separate structures to produce pollen and to take in pollen and produce fruits. In most cases, these male and female flowers exclusively grow on separate trees, though it is not unheard of for some varieties to have both on the same individual, allowing for a single tree to pollinate itself. Ideally, you don't have any male mulberries planted in your town, as their pollen is a significant allergen. Male mulberry pollen is pretty neat, though. The noodly pollen-producing parts of the flower, called filaments, will flex back and then spring forward, straightening in less than 25 microseconds. That's 0.00025 seconds. A study published in 2006 identified this as the fastest motion yet observed in biology. Which is so fun, until you realize that that sort of speed is used to fling allergies right into your nostrils. But if we're all lucky, that pollen will instead land in the pistil of a female flower. Which is funny, because usually a pistil is what does the shooting. But I digress. The flower pistil is where the plant ovaries live, which get fertilized and start the process of growing into a fruit. Mulberries are aggregate fruits. Best way to explain that is they look incredibly similar to elongated blackberries. The unripe fruits start out either white or light green, then become red, and later a very dark purple, nearly black, when fully ripe. Though some varieties exist that prevent the fruits from changing color as they ripen, giving you these weird white fruits. I have not tasted mulberries myself, despite the fact that there's some mulberries that grow in a ditch by my apartment. You may think it's a good thing that I've thus far avoided eating the ditch mulberries, but I did notice some excited children picking them last summer. So maybe I'll give them a shot here in a couple months. But according to what I've read, mulberries are juicy and sweet, but not too big on flavor. This may be one reason that these fruits haven't hit the market, but flavor is a pretty easy thing to breed for. More realistically, mulberries have never been commercially viable because the fruits spoil so easily, something that has not successfully been bred out of them. They do have some history of being produced and sold locally in various parts of the world, but once cross-country and international shipping became a thing, they couldn't compete with more durable products, something to which the North American pawpaw can unfortunately relate. 
Before going through these physical characteristics, I mentioned that I was focusing on three different species. And for all intents and purposes, these descriptions are general enough to apply to the white, black, and red mulberries. What's most distinct about them is to where they are originally native. The red mulberry is a North American species found growing across the eastern United States. The black mulberry comes from southwestern Asia, most likely Iran or the Caucasus. And the white mulberry comes from East Asia, between China and India. The white mulberry is objectively the most significant of the three in terms of human connection and contributed to early instances of international trade and connectivity. So we will follow it back to ancient China to discover what value humans found in it thousands of years ago that can still be seen in our everyday lives today. Let's talk about silkworms. Silkworms are not trees. Silkworms are the larva or caterpillar stage of an insect called the silk moth, scientifically Bombyx mandarina. In this caterpillar stage, the silkworm will almost exclusively consume leaves from the white mulberry tree. You can go ahead and exhale now. That wasn't as strange as the fig-wasp relationship, now was it? All it does is eat the tree. Totally normal. Well, this comfort you're feeling right now is false and fleeting, because the silkworm doesn't simply sit down for a normal dinner of mulberry salad each night. It takes things too far. Munch munch, says our little white noodle friend, as it proceeds to eat mulberry leaves almost continually for six weeks straight. The silkworm will consume 50,000 times its initial weight in plant material over that time. I don't know about you, but if I somehow managed to consume 50,000 times my weight, I would feel like a monster. But you know what? So does the silkworm. Over the course of this buffet existence, it molts four times, increasing its weight 10,000-fold, expanding to be three inches or seven and a half centimeters long, changing color and shape from white with horns on its back to light yellow, skin stretched tight over its engorged body. Finally, blessedly, this creature has had enough. The silkworm attaches itself to a twig or some other sturdy structure and begins weaving a cocoon out of the filamentous material that we know as silk. Round and round, the silkworm rotates itself hundreds of thousands of times over the course of a week to construct a bed to sleep off the food crime it has just committed. Between all the stringy silk it spits out is a gummy binding fluid called saracen that binds everything together. If you'd like to try and remember the name of that fluid, then let's just think of our silkworm as being named Sarah, and this act of gluttony can then be referred to as Sarah's sin. It's worth remembering because that's how we came up with the name for silkworm farming, sericulture. Anywhere between five and 7,000 years ago, according to archaeology, Someone in Stone Age China looked at this lovely silken cocoon and grew covetous of the comfort this caterpillar must be experiencing as it transformed into a fluffy little moth. 
But as they watched the process unfold, they noted how the moth released an enzyme that dissolved the cocoon and destroyed the precious silk so that it had a means of escaping. Thus, a strategy for harvesting this silk material intact, cruel by necessity, was devised. Once the cocoon is formed, humans will take it and drop it in boiling water, killing the half-formed silk moth inside and softening the gummy saracen so that the individual silk strands can be unwound. Up to a mile of silk can be harvested from a single cocoon, but it takes around three strands to be spun into a single thread. That thread is set into a loom, which allows it to be woven like any other textile, like cotton or wool. This is the history of manufacturing silk fabric. I'll let you decide whether this is better or worse than the relationship between wasps and figs. Sericulture is, understandably, controversial, as living beings must die to produce this type of fabric. But it's important to understand in the context of this episode because this process does not occur without the white mulberry. Some silkworms have been known to be okay with other mulberry species and even leaves of the Osage orange. But in most cases, a silkworm would rather starve than eat anything other than the leaves of this species in particular. Silk is a very fine fabric and has been highly valued by numerous cultures for thousands of years. It defined the birth of international trade with the famous Silk Road that connected China to the Mediterranean over 2,000 years ago. It's well understood that this was a network of trade routes and not a single road, and that silk was not the only good to be traded along it, but there's a reason that it was named after this product. Alongside the finished silk material, silkworms themselves were traded, and subsequently the white mulberry. We're going to pause right here and let these trade networks develop, because there's a different East Asian mulberry species that I'd like us to take a look at before we head too far west in this journey. The paper mulberry, more often considered a mulberry relative, has historically grown throughout much of East Asia like the white mulberry, but its connection to human history is actually more tied to the peoples found across the Pacific Islands. You see, paper mulberry can also be woven into fabric, but not in a weird way. The inner bark of this species is fibrous enough to be woven into a material known as bark cloth, or some variation of the word tapa depending on where in Oceania you are. Tapa fabric is a truly significant material in the diverse cultures of the Pacific Islanders. It is what you would use to wrap a newborn in. It's what a bride and groom would walk over after being married. It's what you wrap around the body of the deceased when they pass on from the world of the living. Tapa is a fabric that connects humans to the other world. It's one of the many cultural examples of human societies creating a separation between our species and the natural world. There is the belief of a world of supernatural beings beyond our own, and nature serves as the veil that divides it from us, or perhaps connects us to it. In many cases, tapa is passed on from generation to generation, and so what is found in a family home or a museum today is made from the material of a plant that lived centuries ago. Were you to see one of these tapa today, you might be astounded by the detail of the patterns woven into this material that was previously the bark of a tree. 
But some scientists have found value in looking even closer to the very DNA of this once-living fiber. It's worth doing because, as I said, the paper mulberry is from East Asia, not Oceania. DNA carries these things called markers that allow someone to trace back the past lineages of an individual. By identifying these markers and connecting them with strains of paper mulberry in other locations, researchers can almost draw a map of how the plant that made a particular sample of bark cloth traveled via the propagation of its ancestors. And by doing this, you can trace the journey that humans took to get to where they are in the Pacific Ocean today. Because paper mulberry is not a plant that can survive thousands of miles of ocean voyage without help. There are a number of theories regarding where the Pacific Islanders came from, and according to this study published by Peña Ahumada et al. in 2020, the paper mulberries that were used to make the tapa samples analyzed here were descended from a variety that grew in Taiwan. We humans love to tell our own stories, but sometimes our stories are too long to remember. Sometimes we must look to the trees to remember for us. Now, at this point, our white mulberry, with all its silk-producing potential, has traveled as far as Western Asia and the Middle East, where it meets its cousin, the black mulberry. Remember, silkworms are picky eaters. They are known to consume black mulberry leaves if nothing else is available, but do so much better with white mulberry leaves that it isn't really worth it to try giving them that inferior product. This hasn't stopped silkworm farmers in the Mediterranean from trying, but this species in particular is better known in the region for its fruit. It was introduced to Europe via the Greeks, and was later commonly known by the Romans, but it seems to have been imported along a particular story that you may have heard called the Tragedy of Pyramus and Thisbe. Long ago, in ancient Babylon, there lived two rival families whose houses shared a wall. Despite the hatred shared between these two families, love managed to eke out its own living there. For the son of one family, Pyramus, and the daughter of the other, Thisbe, did not understand the bitterness and wanted to be together. An easy-to-miss crack in the shared wall allowed them to communicate in secret. Knowing that their families would forbid any real interaction between them, the lovers arranged to meet in secret under the cover of night at a well-known mulberry tree just outside the city. Thisbe, hastened by anticipation, arrived at their rendezvous early though she was not alone. A lion was prowling the woods nearby, blood dripping from its mouth after a recent kill. Thisbe fled the area for her safety, but dropped her cloak as she ran. The lion, being a very large cat, saw the fallen cloak and decided to tear it up and wander away once it got bored. When Pyramus arrived at the mulberry tree, all he found was Thisbe's torn cloak covered in blood with the lion's tracks leading away. Thinking her dead, Pyramus decided he did not want to live in this world without his love, and chose to fall on his own sword, killing himself. As he did so, his blood splattered across the mulberry tree, turning its white berries a deep blood red. Sometime later, when she thought it was safe, Thisbe returned to the meeting point and saw what Pyramus had done. And with that same tragic mindset, she chose to also fall on her lover's sword so that she could perish with him. 
This is an interesting type of myth that serves to explain why some natural phenomenon occurs. In this case, answering the question, why do mulberries turn from white to dark red? Leave it to ancient Babylonians to think of something so macabre when they see a color resembling blood in nature. And this story is thought to actually come from ancient Babylon, though the oldest surviving version of it comes from the Roman poet Ovid, centuries after the great Babylonian empire fell. But it does ultimately leave the age of the story in question, and thus presents another uncertainty. Was this the native black mulberry that had been bred in the area for its fruit, or was this late enough in Mesopotamian history for trade of the white mulberry to have made it from China? Both the black and white mulberries had reason enough to be traded across the Mediterranean in the heights of Greek and Roman civilization. The black mulberry and its fruit ever remained a product regional to where it was grown, though, and so never achieved the same level of widespread notoriety as its caterpillar-feeding white cousin. Everywhere that silkworms and white mulberries were taken produced a new source of wealth and prosperity thanks to the production of silk so long as the climate could sustain them. As was done with numerous other agricultural products, the Romans tried to spread sericulture to wherever their empire expanded, which included Britain. And when Britain became a power of its own, they too attempted to harness the wealth provided by silk manufacturing. But these trees, and these caterpillars, were more accustomed to climates found in southern China, Persia, and the Mediterranean. British winters were too harsh, and these natural resources simply could not thrive there. This is actually a leading theory as to where the nursery rhyme, Here We Go Round the Mulberry Bush, comes from. The core of the nursery rhyme is actually something that transcends British culture, as other variations of it exist elsewhere in Europe, and there are apparently older versions in Great Britain that reference a bramble bush rather than a mulberry bush. But the lyrics as we know them are thought to be a joke regarding Britain's difficulty with silk manufacturing, especially since an early version of it goes, here we go round the mulberry bush on a cold and frosty morning. Either that, or it's about female prisoners exercising around a mulberry tree in their jail yard. One or the other. Britain certainly still profited off of silk production with the lucrative East India Trading Company that sought to control the trade of goods coming from China but a new opportunity presented itself in the British colonies of the New World, for another mulberry species grew all across eastern North America, the red mulberry. The red mulberry had been known to indigenous peoples as a nutritional food source, eating or cooking with the fresh berries, as well as drying them to create food that would last through the winter. But as with the black mulberry, silkworms did not care for this strange, slightly different leaf. And so the white mulberry was introduced immediately to the first British colonies in Virginia in the 17th century. The white mulberry did well in Virginia. So well, in fact, that it began cropping up on its own in wild forests thanks to birds loving their fruits. The aggressive expansion of invasive white mulberries, oftentimes replacing the native red mulberry, is something this country still struggles to manage today. Despite this, silk production never took off on a commercial scale in the United States. Sure, there were some wealthy individuals like Benjamin Franklin who invested in producing it on a small scale. There was a short-lived craze for mulberry growth in the 1830s, thanks to some shady marketing, and in the early 1900s, the state of Pennsylvania made a significant investment in the practice. 
But let's be real. After hearing my explanation of what goes into Sarah culture, would you rather go through that complicated process or make just as much money with tobacco, cotton, or hemp? So when you come across silk fabric today, chances are that it was still produced in China. But there's a 50-50 chance that it came from somewhere else in Asia, or perhaps Italy. Regardless, this material has come on a long journey. Distance is all relative today, but it's a product that traveled the world over when such movement was something truly remarkable. And it all comes back to a little white noodle guy and a tasty snack of mulberry leaves. Learning about the mulberry has certainly made me think twice about a number of things. Silk, obviously, because I'll never think about that the same way again. But I also can't help but think about those ditch mulberries near my apartment that children were so eagerly collecting fruit from. Ditch or no, it's a truly local food that I can't simply get anywhere. So perhaps this summer, I'll try and get ahead of those kids to collect my own tasty snack. Just a handful, though. If I've learned anything from the silkworm, it is that there is grace in moderation. If you're enjoying the podcast and want more content from me, or just want to thank me for making it, consider subscribing to my Patreon. I regularly post a video series where I take viewers on educational hikes through the varied forests of New England, and occasionally throw in additional goodies as the opportunity arises. And by supporting me, you'll also be supporting wonderful organizations dedicating to reforesting our world, like Trees for Life that works to bring back the Caledonian woodlands of the Scottish Highlands. If you're interested, check out patreon.com slash myfavoritetrees and consider subscribing at the Treehugger tier for unlimited access to this content, early episode releases, and more. A couple months ago, in my Arborvitae episode, I mentioned a Japanese tree called the Nezuko that introduced me to the sacred trees of Kiso. These five evergreen trees from a particular forest in Japan have historically been excluded from logging, save for the homes of wealthy elites or the construction of shrines. In two weeks, I'm dedicating an entire episode to these five species collectively. Come back on March 5th to learn what these trees are, why such protections were placed on them, and how the holiness of the forest has waxed and waned in Japanese culture throughout the country's history. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please consider leaving a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their awesome stuff at academygarden.bandcamp.com. My cover art is by at Boomerang Brit on Instagram. My script editor and social media manager is my wonderful fiance, Lori Hilburn. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at My Favorite Trees or on Instagram at Tree Podcast. You can support me directly by joining my Patreon at patreon.com slash myfavoritetrees or donate directly to a sustainable organization like the ones found on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug. <laughs>